0: In the dark. Hey guys, I just wanted to quickly apologize because my recording software was not picking up my mic, so you won't be hearing me ask the questions, but you will still be hearing Peter Klein's responses, and the questions become very apparent from his responses. He's good like that, so... I hope you guys enjoy the episode regardless. I didn't want to scrap it because it was a really good conversation. So I hope you enjoy regardless, and I will prevent this in the future. Yeah. Hi, everybody. Uh, Peyton, thanks for the invitation to come on. Great to be here. Great to be with your audience. Uh, I'm a professor at Baylor University where I teach uh, entrepreneurship and innovation. I also teach at Mises University in the summertime. I'm a a senior scholar associated with the Mises Institute and have been uh, in the sort of free market movement for, gosh, almost 30 years now. So I love talking about these kinds of issues and look forward to answering any questions you might have. Yeah, sure. Happy to. I mean, uh, you know, if we just sort of back up and start with the very basics, what do we mean by social media, right? Social media is the label for a variety of software and hardware products, right? So you think of apps like uh, Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or whatever, Um, you know, their, you know, electronic communication, of course, has been around for a long time. I don't know, primitive exchanges of messages through electronic media date, at least to what the 1950s, 1960s, you know, email became sort of a standard way for people to communicate in the, the 1990s, 2000s. And now people have moved on to these apps that are, they're called social media apps for a couple reasons. I mean, one is because uh, uh, they are, you know, a a social media application is really sort of a platform or a space within which people can engage, not just in one-on-one conversation, like on the telephone or in an email, but, you know, one-to-many conversation, like posting in a forum or uh, having something on a blog or, or, or a chat. So in a sense, the modern social media platforms are sort of an outgrowth of earlier internet technologies, the old bulletin boards, even in the dial-up days, they had bulletin boards where people could post things. Uh, I guess maybe Reddit would be the closest modern sort of example. You can post, other people can comment. Um, You know, then we had uh, uh, other kinds of chat rooms and, of course, blogs. You know, the idea with social media is that one person without any kind of you know, publishing support can write something. It could be just you know 250 characters or less, or it could be a longer form essay. It, it can be distributed to a large number of people who can then interact with it through comments and likes and shares and and, and uh, so forth. So, social media is really sort of a collaborative communications platform or system, but it has like other kind of networks. It has some unusual properties like the fact that the value of participating in any of those communities has a lot to do with the size of the community, right? So you don't wanna be you know, a social network that only has, if you and I Peyton created our own social media app and we're the only two users, well then it's just basically like email or, or text or phone, phone calls that we could already have. Okay, we have 10 people in the network. Well, I mean, it has value, in terms of communicating with a small group of people, and maybe you're in a some kind of a you know text group or what are some of those other apps uh, that people use like group me, you know for ten people or twenty people to, to have a focused conversation? That's fine. But for general interaction with a much larger circle, I want to be in a network that has a lot of other users. The economists refer to this as network effects. A network effect is, Present when the value of a network depends on the size of the network, as sort of a commonplace observation. And for us, it doesn't have any particular, you know, sort of policy significance. But for a lot of economists, sort of mainstream economists, they see this as a potential source of market failure, that there's there's a sort of a problem here in that a a proprietary network can uh, once it becomes you know achieves a certain size. And become sort of the standard platform within which people communicate. Then it's very difficult for a new network to arise and compete against it, because you know everybody's already on the original network. There are lots of there are lots of Twitter substitutes out there: Gab and Parler and what's it, there's newer Getter, I think it's called. There's a bunch of those apps that are trying to compete with Twitter. So far, none of them has toppled Twitter as the dominant platform for short form, you know, text. Based communications uh, uh, in, in a network because it's hard for them to get traction because everybody's on the other platform. So if you're worried that uh, that gives the platform operator some, uh, you know, some some ability to influence things both in terms of content curation or in principle charging higher prices, what mainstream economists would call market power, right? That the dominant networks can prevent other networks from coming in. That's what has made this an interesting issue for policymakers and for economists. Of course, a bunch of hearings. Uh, there have been hearings in the U.S. Congress for, uh, for, for many months, and there was a, a bill that was introduced uh, just earlier this week to wrest some of the power away from social media platforms by requiring interoperability and data portability, other things that we can sort of talk about. But to make a long story short, I mean, what we mean by social media is just an app. You know, they're mostly free. They're private, it's totally voluntary, but a lot of people like them, and they have sort of had a big transformation on society and how we get our news and information, how we interact with other people. So there's a lot of sort of cultural and social interest in this particular product category. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I think there's some different layers or levels to the question that you asked, the issue that you raised I mean, before we talk about um, sort of government ownership or government regulation specifically, I mean, I think we should reflect a little bit on the concept of kind of a, you know, a public forum or a neutral forum. You sometimes hear the term public square. They People say, oh, well, you know, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, that now constitutes the public square. And, you know, it's vital to democracy and society and so forth that everybody be allowed to participate. This shouldn't, it shouldn't be like a private club. I mean, again, these arguments predate social media or the internet or technology at all in the following sense. I mean, you know, w- one way to define the public square is, you know, very literally in terms of you know, public property. So, uh, you know, uh, you're living in a town or a city and there's a, you know, there's a park in the middle of the town. I mean, literally the town square, the public square, you know, it's owned by the city. It's, it's government owned property. And, uh, you know, it's where people gather and people have meetings there and they socialize and maybe people give speeches and there are protests and demonstrations and all kinds of community activities in that literal square. It's literally government property. And so the argument would be it's inappropriate for the the government operator to restrict access to people with certain political views or, uh, you know, people who are um, have the right ideology, etc. That would be uh, an illicit, illegitimate restriction of access to public property to someone, you know, based on, okay, maybe if if a person's committed a criminal act or they're about to set fire to a building, okay, maybe you could exclude them on that, you know, sort of common law criminality grounds, but you couldn't exclude them because they're libertarians or exclude them because they like listening to Peyton's podcast, you know, obviously malcontents in that sense. Okay, but it's also the case that there, there are other sort of venues that serve a similar function. You know, people gather there, they get together, they hang out, but they're not literally public. I mean, they're private. Think about a small town and there's like a, a diner or there's a coffee shop. And, you know, you all know these things, or at least you've seen them in movies, you know, and all the old retired men in the town get together together. On, in the mornings, and drink their coffee, and they sit around and shoot the breeze, and tell war stories, and do whatever they do. It's sort of a gathering place, or maybe it's a, a pub, the village pub or, or bar in the evening after work. People get together, they socialize. I mean, in some sense, it serves a sort of similar function. It's like a public gathering place, but but you know, the, the, the restaurant owner or the pub owner would have the right to exclude people if they want to, really for any you know for any reason, because it's private property. There, there have been some court cases in the U.S. about, you know, like a shopping mall. Can, can a privately owned shopping mall restrict people from, you know, handing out leaflets about some social or political issue or having a protest? And courts all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court have ruled, yes, they can exclude because the, a shopping mall is not a it's not the public square. It's private private property, even though people gather there and hang out. Okay, so what about Twitter? What about Facebook? What about, you know, Instagram, TikTok, whatever it Reddit? I mean, those those are formally private entities, right? I mean, you know, they're private companies. And you know, the software that you use to connect is just like, you know, it's just like any other commercial good or service that you you can pay for. And of course, software has some interesting characteristics, it's easy to copy and so forth. Um, you know, it's it's true that any electronic communication uh, activity, you know, involves using using wires or antennas or part of the broadcast spectrum where the government has played some role in, in handing that out or, you know, deciding who gets to use. I mean, that's certainly true. But I mean, to me, that doesn't make Twitter public any more than Walmart is public property by the fact that you have to travel on government roads to get there. Now, we might say, oh, well, gosh, it'd be better if we didn't have government intervening in the telecommunications sphere. Yeah, sure. We could agree with that and say, gosh, it'd be better if the government didn't, um, you know, own, the government didn't confiscate property to build roads that take you to Walmart. The government didn't subsidize the cost of electricity that, you know, Walmart is using or uh, intervene in the labor market to decide who Walmart can hire and find. Yeah, I mean, libertarians would say, yeah, the government shouldn't do all those things. But it doesn't follow from the fact that the government does that Walmart is the state or that Walmart belongs to the state or that Walmart can't, you know, I don't know if, if I manufacture a, a gizmo and I want Walmart to sell it. Walmart refuses to carry my gizmo. I, that, that's not like this, the mayor, you know, banning me from entering the, the town square because he doesn't like my views. I mean, my view is that social media platforms are private. The same way that Walmart is private or any company or activity or physical space that is nominally private property, you know, is, is actually private, right? So we could we can talk about the regulations that are in place. I mean, what is government currently doing to subsidize social media platforms and we want it to not do that? Or what? how is government regulating or holding back social media platforms? I think we should treat them in the mixed economy just like we treat any part of private enterprise in the mixed economy, namely, yeah, it's private, government is intervening and hurting some companies and helping some companies, and we can analyze that, but I think it's a mistake to say, well, because we live in the mixed economy, therefore General Motors is public, therefore Walmart is public, you know, is part of the state in that sense, therefore Twitter is part of the state, and even as libertarians, we should want it to be controlled like, like the way we want the FBI to be controlled. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a, a reasonable uh, concern uh, that, that that people have. Again, I think there. Let's say there are two different ways we could address that kind of, you know, this kind of uh, issue. One is you know sort of a philosophical deontological rights based perspective, which is kind of what I was arguing with the Walmart analogy. We can say, so for example, we might say, okay, if the fact that you know President Biden has an official Twitter account and uses it to to send stuff out and that you know Twitter has banned you know Donald Trump from using its platform Whoa, right away that means Twitter's intervening in you know sort of political discourse it's partnering with the state i mean one one problem with that is you know we need to think what what are the boundaries to that uh, you know to that kind of ontological claim i mean let's say that you know the FBI you know the FBI uses computers with Microsoft Windows, right? Say, you know, FBI has a fleet of government-owned cars and they're all, you know, General Motors cars. I don't think we would say, well, that makes General Motors part of the state, right? Even Even if General Motors gives them a special deal, right? Like, I forget now which company makes the president's limousine. I don't remember if it's Cadillac or... Lincoln Continental, but you know, say it's Lincoln, and they they you know they give the U.S. government the president's limo for free because you know, they think it's good advertising for them. Um, you know, does that mean they're kind of in bed with the federal government in a way that, gosh, if I now go out and buy a Lincoln Continental for private use, I'm now participating with the state somehow? I just think that's too much of a slippery slope argument. The fact that in our society today. Social media platforms are being used by state officials for communication, and they're, you know, they're partnering both openly and probably covertly with state agencies in uh, ways that that you know we might think are inappropriate. Does that make them part of the state? Uh, here's another example. Say, uh, you know, there there's, there are all these issues about encryption on our mobile devices, and you know, Apple has taken a public stand in the past that it will not, you know. That it, in fact, that it, that it can't even have wanted to, but you know, Apple will not decrypt some criminal's iPhone just because the FBI demands it, right? But suppose it did. I mean, suppose Apple had an agreement that said, yeah, okay, if, if the FBI says that Peyton is a terrorist, uh, we're going to give the FBI all of Peyton's, all the, you know, we're going to get all the data off his phone. Um, I mean, that kind of thing happens all the time. I mean, if, if, if uh, if the FBI declares you persona non grata and their agents have a warrant and they want to go in, they want to, go to your home, take all your stuff, let's say you live in an apartment and the landlord willingly lets them in to search through your private stuff in your apartment. I mean, does that make your apartment complex part of the state? No, I would say that means that your private apartment complex is cooperating with the state in ways that maybe we think it shouldn't. But I don't think it follows that all apartment complexes should be regulated like state agencies just because they let, you know, police or FBI or whatever into people's apartments in cases where they shouldn't. But Peyton, there's a second way to think about this too, just a purely practical, you know, consequentialist utilitarian kind of argument. Say, say we agree, yes, Facebook and and Twitter and. Uh, and these other platforms, they have given up their right to be treated as private entities and dogged on it. We're going to treat them. We're going to smash. You know, we're going to smash them just like we're going to want to constrain them, just like we would want to constrain the FBI. Okay, what does that mean in practice? I mean, what is a regulation that is feasible that would make social media platforms behave better? You know, that doesn't have costs that exceed the benefits. For example people have argued that, uh, uh, well, social media platforms, uh, we ought to have a regulation that says they have to have, you know, content neutrality, right? So so uh, we have to make sure that these platforms don't discriminate based on politics. Okay, well, I mean, what does that mean in practice? Well, one model would be, you know, any, no one can be removed from a social media platform for any reason, right? You You can... Call for murdering people, you can you drop F-bombs left and right, you know, in the child safe version. I mean, know who knows? There are all kinds of behaviors that are totally non-political that we might think it's you know, is like like I wouldn't want to be on a social media platform that has zero content restrictions whatsoever. Or I mean, maybe you might want to. I don't think there are any, even the ones that advertise themselves as being the most lenient. You know, Gab is probably the best example. I mean, there are terms of service. You can get booted off Gab for you know, calling, calling for the murder of somebody or releasing people's private information. You know. So how do you design rules that allow social media platforms to have some moderation capability and to exclude some people from using without that running into this gray area that, oh, well, that looks like you're discriminating against this person for their political views. I just don't know, how, don't know how you would do it. And in my mind, government enforced content neutrality. They say now you've created a government bureaucracy. There's a new regulatory agency. You know, people have joked jokingly called it. Say it should be called the Ministry of Truth. You know, the Ministry of Truth monitors all social media communications, and you know, lay hands down, fines on different operators for violating content neutrality. I mean, come on, that would be that would be a cure worse than the original disease. That would make social media platforms much worse than they are today. Another example is uh, some people have called for regulations for mandatory data portability, meaning that if I want to leave Twitter and go to um, Parler, I should be able to, you know, download all my data and move it from one platform to the other, and Twitter should be required to sort of eliminate, you know, delete all references to my existence on its platform. I mean, just from a technical point of view, none of that even makes sense. I mean, it isn't the only way you could have full data portability is to make, if you did that, the applications would be basically useless. I mean, there would be nothing interesting that you could do on a social media platform if it had to be designed in such a way that, you know, all of your contributions, all of the content you upload, pictures, media, typing, all the comments and likes of your Posts, all your comments, the likes of other people's posts. There's really no way you can design that from a technical point of view to make that extractable and where you could delete it on one and plug it into another. It would just make the platforms not usable. So even if you don't believe my deontological argument that doing bad things and working with the state doesn't make a private entity part of the state, even if you don't, even if if that argument's not convincing, I, I have yet to hear. An, a, a, an example of a regulation that would solve the problems that people on the right are worried about that doesn't create even more problems than it solves. Yeah, sure. Sure. I mean, the, th- the thing about network effects that people forget is, you know, if, if, if a network effect is present, it means that other things equal, the, 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 the bigger network is more valuable than the smaller network. But that other things equal caveat, is extremely important, right? So it might be that a smaller network, you know, it, it's not as good in terms of the network effect, but it's better in other terms. It has better features. It works more reliably. It is easier to use. I mean, who knows? Look, if you think about it, uh, the the the, the uh, I'm reminded. I think I may have mentioned this in uh, in my Mises You talked uh, that in uh, late 2020 right when a lot of schools and offices, you know, pivoted from face-to-face interaction to online interaction, and, you know, what was at that time a little-known, fairly obscure video conferencing platform, Zoom, all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden uh, surged in popularity and had, became the dominant video conferencing platform to where even now, you know, we, we, we often use the word Zoom as a generic, noun or verb like you know goo you know to search something you is to google it um you know to copy something is to xerox it right so to, to hey do you want to you want to do a phone call or do you want to do a zoom even if you don't literally mean zoom maybe you mean webex or teams or google meet but everybody uses the word zoom as the generic thing so zoom became dominant you started to see these articles coming out in late 2020 you know zoom's huge market share proves that network effects are real and dangerous and that some firms have too, mu- too much market power. I mean, I almost spat up my coffee when I would read, when I read some of those articles, because I thought, wait, the whole point is Zoom became dominant in like, you know, two months. It went from being very, very small to being very large because it was good, it was better, people liked it, right? There were, remember, there were other video conferencing platforms I think I think at that time WebEx was probably the dominant one, and there was which is which is made by Cisco. Cisco is one of the world's largest tech companies, right? Huge cash reserves, dominant market position in networking hardware. You know the, the kind of monopoly arguments that you hear all the time. If they apply to anyone, they ought to apply to Cisco. If any firm could have dominated the video conferencing market. by by tying its software to its hardware, using the huge set of relationships that it already had with big companies and school systems. It should have been Cisco. But WebEx was displaced by Zoom because people liked Zoom better, right? So look at Twitter. I mean, Twitter, how, how, how many years, when was Twitter founded? I don't remember the exact year, early 2000s. I mean, how can we say that, how, how can network effects prevent anyone else from competing with Twitter when network effects didn't protect the predecessors to Twitter, right? Network effects didn't pre- prevent Facebook from losing market share, especially among, imagine you have a lot of listeners, Peyton, in your, you know, who are millennials and Gen Zs. You know, your, Facebook is for your grandma, right? I mean, network effects didn't protect Facebook. Uh, network, and net, network effects have not pre- prevented TikTok from exploding over the last year. Um, You know, who knows what the next social media platform will be, but social media uh, products characterized by network effects rise and fall all the time. Again, the network effect is just a little extra thing on the margin that gives you a benefit over, you know, if you're the dominant incumbent, the network effect gives you a little advantage on the margin over potential entrants. That doesn't mean it's an insurmountable barrier, right? If network effects were insurmountable barriers, barriers, we would all still be using email and uh, fax machines and, you know, old, you know, 1980s style IBM PCs. I mean, it's just, it's it's crazy if you look at the data, right? Market share goes up and down all the time, for companies, no matter how sort of dominant they supposedly are, especially in the technology sector, especially in the tech sector. Look at, uh, I've been doing a case study with my, one of my classes on BlackBerry, right? In the mid-2000s, BlackBerry was the dominant smart device. It was the first smartphone, the first widely used smartphone. And it, I don't know the exact, market. Hey, you know, 90% of the business handheld communications market and 70, 80% of the total global, you know, smart device market. And now, now it's gone. I mean, now the company's literally dead. The brand, the name still exists. It's been, it was bought by one company, then bought by another company, but the, the, the company Research in Motion is dead. If network effects are as dominant as the critics say they are, BlackBerry should still be the dominant phone. The fact that it's not is living proof that the network effects argument does not does not make markets stagnant and it doesn't give any firm a dominant, insurmountable monopoly position. Yeah. No, I mean it's it, it's a legit concern, right? It's easy to say in the abstract, okay, if you don't like, if you don't, if you don't like what these social media companies are doing. Just don't use them i mean and that that it, it's certainly a valid point i mean there's no you know there's no we're not legally required to be on any social media platform or even to have a smart device or be on the internet or whatever you know but on a, a practical level you know most people don't want to live you know in the woods you know off the grid um what can you do and and by the way you know i think where the real concern is it's not so much social media platforms engaging in cancel culture, but it's, you know, it's banks and credit card companies, and it really is very difficult, you know, if you're a small business owner, and you're cut off from the payment system, you know, you can't, customers can't pay with Visa and MasterCard, or they can't pay with a debit, yeah, obviously, we don't want to laugh that off and say, oh, we'll just, you know, just build your own private infrastructure. Now, people are building their own private infrastructure, and it may be that crypto kinds of technologies, you know, blockchain-based technologies may, uh, you know, uh, uh, they already have, but you know, they've they've already limited the ability of banks and credit card companies and other big politically connected entities, you know, to sort of cut people cut people off. So if we see that trend accelerate, that will certainly be uh, make it easier for um, people to avoid these sort of gatekeepers. But look, Peyton, I think there's also um, Again, we're getting away from theory here and into sort of practical, you know, sort of political strategy. I mean, Murray Rothbard always used to say that, um, uh, you know, we, we should be, you know, radical in our in our doctrine, and we should never support, uh, you know, so-called reforms that actually make things worse rather than better. But it doesn't follow from that that every individual libertarian is called to be a martyr. Right now, now, I know, I know some people in, you know, in the movement, maybe you do too, who, you know, refuse to, you know, go on, well, not too many who refuse to use the public roads, but I know some, here's an example, say that you live in a city that has a public library. It has a government owned municipal library. I mean, yes, there are a handful of libertarians who would say, I refuse to set foot in that place. I will not check out a library book from the public library because that is endorsing the state, and you know I want to fight the state. I'm boycotting the state, so I won't use the public library. And um, I know we could think of other examples. You know, I want. Uh, I guess I can't avoid going on the roads entirely, but I'm going to try to as much as possible minimize all my dealings with the state. I mean, again, if you if you want to do that, that's fantastic. If you want to, you know, um, you know, try to. You know, I'm going to only use crypto and, and blockchain technologies. I'm not going to have a bank account. That's fine. I mean, if, if, if people want to do that, more power to you. I don't think it follows that every individual has a moral obligation to engage exclusively in those kinds of activities, even if it comes at great personal risk. Um, one example that Rothbard talked about was in, in the education sector because uh, Rothbard was sometimes asked because he was a, obviously, you know, hardcore, <laughs> I, I, I think you could say Murray Rothbard was a pretty hardcore Rothbardian, right? But but he spent a lot of his career as a university professor at Brook, the Brooklyn Polytech Institute, which was a public university in New York. He was a professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, public university in Nevada. And, you know, many times he was asked, well, how, Rothbard, how can you, are you're working for the state, you're part of the state. And the way his argument was the following: He said, "Look, he said, in in the mixed economy, and with you know the sort of gigantic superstate that we have today, there are a lot of things that there are different kinds of things that the state does. Some of them are things that only a state can and would ever do, like you know, drop nuclear bombs on people, and operate you know prison camps and and, and so forth." But there are a lot of other things in our society that the state does that where the state has to, it's a perfectly legitimate activity, you know, like, like teaching little kids. I mean, teaching kids is a perfectly legitimate activity, but a huge, not 100%, but a huge part of the educational, you know, K through 12 education in our country and in most countries around the world. It's been sort of taken over by the state, it's been co opted by the state. So, you know, Rothbard would say, um, you know, if you want, uh, teaching in a private school is great, and that's probably better than teaching in a public school, or, you know, leading your private homeschool co-op is probably better than being a public school teacher, but it is not per se immoral or unethical to be a public school teacher. It, you know, if you're, if you are gifted in teaching, if your passion is to be a teacher, it just so happens that the state has a, a virtual monopoly on K-12 through education, and really the For most people, the only way to be a teacher is to to be a state employee. You know, same thing in higher ed. There are private universities, of course, but even the private universities. I work at a private university, but even the private universities are just as much in bed with the state, you know, as the public ones. But it is very difficult to be a university professor and not be involved in some way. Either you're teaching at a state university or your institution is subsidized through state funds, Rothbard said, because being a professor is not per se illegitimate, is not per se immoral, then yeah, it would be better if we could get the state out of higher ed, but as long as the state is in higher ed, it's not immoral for you to participate, to, to, to be part of that racket, okay? Um, uh, likewise, I think you could argue, okay, look, if you know, if you're a small business owner, Um, And you feel very strongly that you have some radical political opinion. You think the FBI should be abolished. I don't think it is a moral obligation. You know, you, know, you got a coffee shop that, you know, on the website of the coffee shop, it says smash the state, abolish the FBI. And, you know, you've got an anarchy flag on your company website. I mean, if you want to have those things, that's great. But I don't think you're a sellout. I don't think you're a compromiser. I don't think you're, you know, enabling the state somehow. If you just go about your own business of being a coffee shop, right, and, and because you want to, your passion is to be a, 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 you know, coffee shop, restaurateur, and you want to have access to the payment system. You don't want to be cut off by your bank. You want to have an Instagram and a Twitter account for your company. You don't want to be cut off. Okay, if you if, if you are that owner operator, and you also want to smash the state on social media, you know, do that under a pseudonym, right? Or you can have a different account. I don't think there's any, again, it's a practical, pragmatic consideration. I don't think it's a, a squishy compromise to say, look, I'm just, I'm not going to fight that fight. I'm going to, because other things are more important to me. Uh, so, I, if you want to participate on social media, as you know, and sort of abide by the rules, you know, I think that's fine. It's up to each of us to decide when do we want to stand in the gap and you know put our lives and our honor and our families and our retirement savings, you know, on the line. And of course, you know, I'm sure there there is a time to do that. Uh, again, to use the Rossberg's example, it's not okay to be a concentration camp guard because that is an inherently illicit activity. In the free market, there would not be concentration camps rounding up people for their political views and torturing them and killing them. So no, it's not okay to be a concentration camp guard, but it is okay to be a bus driver who works for the city because driving a bus is a legit activity. Likewise, I think it's okay not to get canceled for practical reasons if you feel like that's a smart move for you. Yeah, yeah. You're absolutely right. And again, I think that there's a lot of judgment as as Walter Bloch might say, this is not a praxeological, you know the strategic issues we cannot uh, uh, we can't formulate strategy with praxeological certainty. I mean, it's 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 a question of judgment and pra- pragmatism. You know there probably are some rules, again to 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 refer to my previous example. Rothbard would say, if you work at a you know uh, um, if you're a teacher, and you work for the public school system, okay, that's fine. But if you also lobby for tax increases in your community to, to have uh, you know to just put more public dollars into the school system so you can earn a higher salary, Rothbard would say that's probably crossing the line, right? Now you're you, that would be actively participating in making things worse, right? In expanding the state, but he thought that you know just just participating partnering with the state as a school teacher, if you're not advocating for state expansion, you know, it is a different matter. So I think that's just an example. Now we could dispute that particular, we could say that's not the right dividing line. But I think that's an example of a practical rule of thumb that that might be correct and might work in many cases. But those are the kinds of things, you know, that we should be thinking about on a pragmatic level. What can each of us do without Necessarily, you know, putting our lives and our family at risk unless we feel that the time has come, you know, to take that kind of bold stand. Right. Well, Peyton, it depends what you mean. I mean, there are two two issues. One is what is the correct position? What is the incorrect position from the standpoint of libertarian principle? But then the second question is, okay, what what should I personally do publicly? Or privately, you know, to, to 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 combat what I think is a mistaken policy. So, I mean, on the first question, I mean, in my mind, there's no question that a law preventing an employer from requiring vaccination or anything else as a condition of employment is a violation of libertarian principle. That's a violation of private property, right? Um, now, of course, now, of course, there are there are contract, contractual reasons. If you have a if you have an employment contract that specifies certain things and the employer now adds a new piece to the employment contract, oh now you've got to get a vaccine uh, or we fire you, that could be a violation of the employment contract, right? So you could potentially sue for breach of contract if you were fired for refusing a vaccine mandate, right? But but you know, if, if an employee if you have an at-will employment contract or you're just like a day laborer. Right? If you're a, if you're a you know, migrant farm worker and you just you, you show up for work and you get paid or not, and then one day they say, oh, you can't work in the f- field unless you're vaccinated, uh, I don't think that's a, that's not a violation of your rights. I mean, as, a, as a, an employee, that may, that's unfortunate. But no, I would not support a law. I think a law that forbids employers from requiring vaccination subject to whatever contracts they've already signed, I think that would not be consistent with libertarian principle. If the question is, you know, how loud should I be on social media? Like, I mean, I think I think the Rothbardian distinction is not the right, it's not the relevant one here. Rather, I, I think here it's um, the distinction between what is legal and what is good and just, you know, look, um, what will be a good example? Um, you know, let, let's say... Um, well, let me think of a good one. What's something I really just, dis- what's a, okay, I don't like, I probably shouldn't say this for your show, but, I, you know, I, okay, based on my age, right, for popular music, well, look, let's just be honest. It's objectively true that sort of the music of my youth is objectively better than the music that you guys listen to today, right? I mean, I like sort of, or sort of late sort of punk rock and what now people call post punk sort of like late 70s, early 80s proto-alternative music like Joy Division or New Order or The Cure or the early U2. I mean, let's just be honest. That's just way better than any of the popular music that you guys are listening to today. Okay, but, you know, does it follow that I should want a law that bans, you know, hip-hop or something that I don't like? No, of course not. And and just because I think that... uh, the government should not inter, you know, the government should not intervene in the production of any kind of art or music that people want to do using private property it doesn't follow from that that i think all the art and music that people are producing now is good i might think it's total garbage right so me saying this is this is should be legal the government should never prevent people from doing x doesn't mean i think it's a good thing for people to do x right you know most libertarians think that people should be able to smoke cigarettes or, or vape or do certain, you know, put substances in their bodies if they want. Does it follow from the fact that libertarians think that uh, smoking should be legal, that they think smoking is good from a moral standpoint? Do they think smoking is healthy? Do they think it's wise that people smoke? Will they encourage you to smoke? No, I mean, those are two totally different issues, right? So, um, I think it's. I think the stuff that uh, social media companies. To return to our original example, I think the kind of. I don't like to use the word censorship, but the kind of content moderation that most social media platforms do, I think, is terrible. I think there is there is no doubt whatsoever that the content moderation policies of the big tech platforms are politically skewed or biased. So I don't think it's good that they do those things. However, I think it should be legal for them to do those things. Right? Likewise, I don't think it's a good idea. I think, I mean, you know, based on my understanding of the science, I think for a private employer to require a vaccine mandate as a condition of employment is unwise. I think it is harmful to employees. I think it does not preve- it does not help the community. It does not prevent the spread of, you know, of, of this particular disease. I think it would be foolish. And I would advise, if, if my friend were owned a company and were doing that, I would tell him not to. If I were the company owner, I hope I would not do that. I think that's a really bad policy, but I think it should be legal for them to do that. Just because something's legal doesn't mean it's smart, wise, good, moral, correct. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, you can find me and my social social media accounts just by searching but my my social media handle is just my name with my middle initial it's peter g klein so i'm at peter g klein on most of the relevant platforms you can also uh, uh if you just go to peter g. it'll redirect you to my my university website that has all of my articles and uh you know, talks that t- links to talks that I've given and talks that I'll be giving, and so forth. I, I've, I'm working on a new book that will come out later this year uh, called "Why Managers Matter." That is a critique of a very uh, idea. I'm going to get a lot of flack among uh, within certain certain corners of the liberty movement, but it's a it's a it's a defense of private hierarchy and a critique of the notion that all organizations should be totally flat and peer-to-peer, and sort of democratic, and so forth. It's a defense of the old-fashioned sort of corporate hierarchy. So that'll get some, that'll be fun, and uh, uh, I'm sure we'll be having some good discussions about that book when it comes out uh, sometime about the middle of next year. But you can find uh, information about all of this stuff on my website or my social media channels. You can find a lot of my stuff on the Mises Institute website as well. I I like to, I like to, you know, be countercultural. And so within the liberty movement, that's a pretty countercultural position. (laughs) Yeah, thanks very much for having me on. Look forward to doing it again sometime. Thanks, you too.